You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. I say it to say you can make it today. You can be an overcomer, and that's what we're talking about. Last week we talked about, we're talking about the seven churches of Revelation, and if you were hoping for signs and symbols and t- me talking about that today, you're going to be disappointed. We're focusing on the seven churches because what better way for us to learn about how we should be as a church? What better way should we learn about um, the challenges that face churches and the challenges that face individuals? Can I encourage you with the fact that the early church that started 2,000 years ago faced their share of challenges and troubles and trials along the way, and they were encouraged by the Lord to stay faithful and to not give up. Last week we talked about the church in Ephesus, which was one of the oldest churches in the New Testament. They had done all the right things. They'd served God, but they were the loveless church. They were serving God, but they had lost their why. Why were they doing it? Who were they doing it for? I talked a little bit about how last week that if you're doing something for your spouse and doing something for your family or doing something for others, don't lose sight of the love that you need to have for them so that you will continue to do what you're doing for the right reason. Today we're talking about the church in Smyrna. It is the persecuted church. And even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of hardship and tribulation, I want you to know today that God wants you to be an overcomer. Say this with me. God wants me me. to be an overcomer. overcomer. Believe that today. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And it's a short passage this morning. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. It says, and to the angel, or messenger, of the church in Smyrna, write this, these things say the first and the last who is dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And when you have had tribulation ten days, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to your word. May your word go forth, and may it reach each person seated here today. For Lord, you love them, and you have a plan for them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us revelation concerning your word, and may we be changed by it in Jesus' name. Smyrna was the persecuted church. It was a, uh, the city of Smyrna was a proud and beautiful city in Asia Minor. It was known for the worship of the Roman emperor. They also had a very hostile Jewish community there that was, made it very difficult for Christians to live there. Remember that as we look at each letter to each of the churches, there were three things that we looked at. There was the commendation, the correction, and the reward. Commendation is what are we doing right What are you doing correctly? The correction is, what do you need to improve upon? And the reward is, if you do these things, 
that I will bestow upon you this blessing. If you overcome, there is a reward waiting for you. Smyrna is unique because like the church in Philadelphia, they are the only two out of the seven churches in which Jesus has no word of correction for. He has only praise and commendation for them. Why? Because they themselves went through trial and tribulation and stayed faithful. There's something about staying faithful in difficulty and trial and keeping the Lord's name above all things that God honors and blesses because of it. God always looks at how we act and how we live and how we're serving him. And if we're doing it in the midst of difficulty, he has no negative words to say. What were the challenges that the church in Smyrna were facing? There's three things that we can look at today. Three things. Number one, they faced tribulation and poverty. The Christians in Smyrna, they served the Lord. And this was a city that was intensely loyal to the emperor. Intensely loyal to Caesar. Smyrna was so known to be dedicated to the Roman Empire that when the Roman army during the winter needed more clothes, it says in the arena, people who are citizens started removing their clothes to give to the soldiers because they believed so strongly in the Roman Empire. So loyal were they to the emperor in Rome is that they built and erected a temple in his honor. And they required all of the citizens to not only just acknowledge the emperor, but they had to bring sacrifices to worship the emperor as God, as one of the many gods. And Christians who served the Lord in, in the city of Smyrna were okay with the fact that they were under the rule of a pagan emperor. But one thing that would, they would not do and never do, they would never offer a sacrifice or a poured out drink offering in the name of the emperor and acknowledge him as God. They would never turn from Christ or uh, compromise their values to worship Christ and also the world government and the emperor that was in charge. So as a result, they said no to this. Many of them lost all that they had because of it. The city was not kind to those who refused to worship the emperor. In fact, many of them lost their jobs. Many of them were imprisoned. Many of them were, uh, uh, faced different kinds of slander and persecution, mostly because the people did not understand them at all. Many Christians lost all that they had. He says, I know your poverty, Jesus says. The word poverty is literally the same word that means beggar. All of them had lost their rights and possessions just for refusing to worship Caesar. It's not any coincidence that if you read far enough in the book of Revelation, you see in Revelation 13 that another world leader comes to power. And he comes to a position of authority and he starts to believe that he is God. And he starts to demand that everyone worship him. And those who do not worship him, they make those people's lives very difficult making it difficult to buy or sell, making it difficult to live, making it difficult that you could even face imprisonment, beatings, and death, and that person is the Antichrist. Be aware that religion has always been used by those in power to enslave others. It goes back as far back as Pharaoh. It goes back as far as the emperor of Rome, Caesar. 
It goes as far as recently as the British Empire where all of the members of a certain family are ordained by God to rule over people. So religion being used as a tool to manipulate and to force people into subjugation is nothing new. But for us as people who are Christians, who are endeavoring to be alert and awake in these last days, whenever a dictator, a king, a ruler, or even a political member of this country claims to be God and claims to be worshipped, you should take notice of that and be very on guard against that sort of thing because Jesus warned us against such things. These Christians in Smyrna had lost it all, yet despite this, Jesus calls them rich. How can they be rich when they don't have possessions? What they were rich in, they were rich in faith, rich in character, rich in hope. They did not give up and they did not quit. What God looks at is not your bank account, thanks be to God. Amen? Aren't you glad that his love for you and his favor for you is not contingent upon how much money you have in the bank, but about the strength and quality of your character, and if you are faithful to him, and if you have God on your side when you are walking and serving him, there is no detriment or lack to you as you walk with him. He will provide everything that you have need for. They were rich because they did not give in to the pressures that was around them. An overcomer overcomes opposition. An overcomer realizes, you can write this down, that there are more important things than wealth and comfort when it comes to living this life. The overcomer doesn't take the easy way out. An overcomer doesn't compromise his standards just for his own comfort and benefit. There are going to be times where you have to be confident in your beliefs in spite of pushback from the rest of the world. There are going to be times where people push back at you. But your ability to stand strong will determine whether you will overcome in the long run. It's not about the short-term resistance you face. And believe me when I say it, that any time you endeavor to do something good, there's always going to be people that say things against you. Even if you're trying to lose weight. And I'm trying to lose weight. How are you doing that? Good luck with that. Or I'm trying to get out of debt. It's like, well, good luck. I hope you can make it. You know, or I really want to start something. I want, I want to start a, a, something to, an organization to help people. They go, well, I don't see that succeeding. I don't even see that you'll be able to get the support you need. Aren't people just so encouraging? <laughs> this world is automatic. The world is like an automatic no. To almost everything that you want to do that's good. If you take that in and of itself, then you will always quit. But you should know that following God is not in the majority, and it's certainly not the popular way to go. So if you're waiting for people to like you, to make it easier on you, or if you're waiting for things to be comfortable for you to keep going, you're going to have a really hard time if things get worse in this world. An overcomer realizes there are more important things. Second challenge they face, they face slander, accusations, and hatred. The church of Smyrna encountered hatred from two places, surprisingly from the Jewish community. That's why he says that those who claim to be Jews who are not and are part of the synagogue of Satan. This is not anti-Semitism here, nor should it be taken that way. Anybody who teaches that is wrong. But what he's saying is that, you know, uh, as Jesus is writing these words, as John is uh, writing them down, that there are those who claim to love God 
but hated the Christians and everything they stood for to the point of they were the ones that were often bringing accusation and slander against the Christians. They were the ones that were bringing them before Roman officials to have them put in jail or to have them beaten or to have them put to death. They were the ones. And so that's why they're called the synagogue of Satan because anyone who is opposed to the work of Christ is actually working for the other side, whether they know it or not. And so they were trying to stop the message of Jesus. The other one was among the pagan culture they lived in. Remember, they worshiped the emperor and they said, well, why won't you worship the emperor? And in a pagan and idolatrous culture, they had an idol for everything. If you go through Rome or Greece and you visit those places today, you can take tourist uh, trips right through those areas and see the marble sculptures of some of the gods and goddesses of the Roman and Greek pantheon. And those who were part of that culture, the pagans didn't understand, why don't you have a statue that you worship? Every other religion has a statue. You don't, what do you mean you don't know what your God looks like? And they actually believed that the Christians were atheists because they didn't have an idol worship. Like, you don't really worship God. You don't even believe there's a God. They also thought that the Christians were cannibals too, by the way, because of the misunderstanding of communion, the bread and the, the wine being the body and blood of Jesus. So they thought that the Christians were cannibals too. So the intense persecution came from the Jews who hated the Christians because they felt like Christianity was a heresy, of the Jewish faith, and the pagan culture hated them because they didn't fit in anywhere. So there were those intense pressures. When it came right down to it, when they were forced to worship the emperor or worship Christ, they always denied the emperor worship and served the Lord. They could not go against their Lord. They could not go against what his word said, and instead they chose to face the difficulty you should know that an overcomer would rather die than compromise their convictions. An overcomer would rather die than compromise their convictions. Despite what reaction they receive, even if people are critical and don't believe in you, tune out the critics. Do what God's called you to do and be faithful to what his word says. The third challenge they faced is they faced imprisonment, a season of imprisonment and death. Verse 10 says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and that you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. The Lord warns them that members of the church in Smyrna would experience a short and intense period of persecution. 10 days signifies a short period of time. As a result, some of them would be thrown into prison and others would be threatened with death. And some in the church did experience that. Remember how we talked about the seven churches in Revelation and what they represented. Jesus talks about walking among seven golden lampstands and having the seven spirits of God and talking about seven stars in his right hand, those seven stars being angels. And how he talked about that those seven lampstands were the seven churches of Asia Minor. And how those seven stars were angels. And when they say angels, it means messengers. Because God doesn't need to write an angel and say, hey, would you do this for me? He just simply says, hey, angel, do that for me. And he does it. So he's writing to those who are over these churches saying, you're doing good, but this is what you need to do better. And so he writes to these seven 
churches and these seven messengers. And so if we look at Smyrna, who is the angel of the church of Smyrna? Well, it's believed, many believe, it was the Bishop Polycarp. Now, Polycarp sounds a little bit of a weird name. It's spelled the way that you would think it would be, but it means fruitful. And he was born into a Christian family, and Polycarp identified himself as a disciple of John the Apostle. So Polycarp is a disciple of the disciples. So he is a disciple of John. He became appointed the Bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor at a young age. And on his way to uh, Ignatius of Antioch, on his way to Roman martyrdom, wrote letters to Polycarp to the church at Smyrna. And near the end of his life, Polycarp visited Rome. And he was serving there as a representative of the Asia Minor churches in a discussion over the proper observance of Easter. Now, Polycarp was known for defending the faith against teachers who would deny the deity of Jesus and deny the resurrection from the dead. He defended those things. Those things were central to the teaching of the church. And along the way, he visits Philippi, and with him he brings a letter, and in his epistle, Polycarp mentions the fame of the Philippians among the churches from the early days until that time. And in his letter, he refers to many New Testament books such as Matthew, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, and 1 Peter. Polycarp is later arrested by civil authorities who attempt to convince him to renounce his faith, and when he refused, he was burned at the stake. 162 AD. The uh, Roman persecution of Christians is at an all-time high. And those who were Christians were usually brought into arenas, and different things would happen to them. Either they would participate in the gladiatorial games in which they would die, or they would be fed to lions or wild beasts, or they would be beaten. In this case, Polycarp is sentenced to die by being burnt at the stake. What were Polycarp's last words? The Roman proconsul, wanting to spare the old man the humiliation of being burned at the stake, gave Polycarp one more chance to renounce Christ. And he says, swear and I will release you. Renounce the name of Christ. And Polycarp tied to the stake. He didn't need to be nailed there because he wasn't going to go anywhere. He wasn't going to struggle. And this was his reply. I want you to listen to the words of this martyr. He said, 86 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Think about those words. He says, 86 years have I served him. He never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And his captors realized that they weren't going to get anywhere with this. So they take their torches, they light the stake on fire. But even as that, that stake starts to consume with fire, a strange thing happens. Polycarp does not burn. He will not burn. And so finally, out of frustration, the executioner takes a spear, runs him through, and blood and water flows, and it puts out the fire, but he dies at the stake. Polycarp was an overcomer. An overcomer fights what they believe in, no matter the cost. That's what an overcomer does. Christ wants us to be more than overcomers, more than conquerors. We can do this because Christ overcame. Romans 8.37 says, I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, all the things that cannot separate you 
from the redeeming love of God. Nothing on earth, nothing under the earth, nothing in the spiritual realm can keep you from God's redeeming love. That means that no one can keep you from Jesus, even if you die. The worst that they can do to you is kill you. They think by putting you to death that they win, but you're the one who has overcome. You've gone from death to life. And they can only conquer you if you let them by giving up. If you renounce your faith. Jesus said, if you deny that you know me before men, he says, I will deny you before the Father in heaven. What does that mean? It means that if we say that, you know, out of convenience, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow Jesus before men, that when we stand before God and we stand in judgment, Jesus will say, I don't know him either. So we must be firm in our convictions and in our faith. If you're overcome by fear, stress, intimidation, imprisonment, threats of death, then they've won. But if that doesn't bother you and that doesn't phase you like Polycarp, then you can overcome. What was the reward at the end of this letter to the church in Smyrna? Take a look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. To him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, he shall not be hurt by the second death. So he says, you'll receive a crown of life. This is not uh, a uh, diadem crown. This is not a royal crown, but it's rather the laurel crown, the, the, the uh, crown of leaves that was given to a runner who had just finished the race. And if you cross that finish line, if you finish the race, then that crown will be given and placed on your head. And it was always given to the victor. Paul talked about it when he was getting close to death. He said, now there awaits for me a victor's crown. That's the crown that he's speaking of, the one who crosses the finish line and has made the race. This life is a race. And when you finish it, you see Christ on the other side welcoming you. To the one who overcomes, he will not be hurt by the second death. Now what is the second death? Persecutors can, and, and evil men can kill the body, but they cannot kill your spirit. Nor can death alone extinguish a person's legacy. I'm going to quote Ernest Hemingway, much to my wife's chagrin. She does not like Ernest Hemingway, but this quote from A Call to Arms is a really good quote. It says, a coward dies a thousand deaths, but the brave die only once. In other words, a person who is a coward will always die to their beliefs and always die to their convictions in order to make their life comfortable and to stay alive. But each time they do, they lose a little piece of themselves, and a little piece of themselves dies. If in persecution you compromise and renounce your faith, your beliefs, your Lord, you lose so much more than you think you do. You lose eternal life. Persecutors, tormentors, and troublers exert pressure and try and snuff out the light that you have. If you give up and give in, they will succeed in putting out your light. But, but, if they can't get you to renounce your deeply held Christian beliefs and all they have left to do is take your life, your words and your life will still have impact. You know, the Roman Empire thought if we just persecute Christians and put them to death, then we will stop Christianity and we will stop the spread of the church. 
But you know it was really interesting that every time they tried to stamp out Christianity, every time they tried to put another martyr to death, every time they tried to close another church or threaten the community of faith with, with uh, persecution, imprisonment, and death, an amazing thing happened. The church grew. You would think to be the opposite. I wonder today that if the church was threatened, Living Hope Church was threatened, would we come here anyway? Would we still come? Will we still worship? Will we still praise him? Or would we say, you know what? Cost is too much. I can't risk myself, my family, any of those things. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this. But the church, when it was persecuted, grew. You know why? Because it kept the fakes out. It kept the people that weren't sincere about it, out of it. And only those that wanted to trust God and had to rely on God stayed with it. The early church had its martyrs, people who died for what they believed in. Stephen the deacon in Acts 6, James the brother of John in the first couple of uh, chapters of the book of Acts, Polycarp the bishop of Smyrna, but notice something, it did not silence their voice. It just raised awareness to their cause. And we have modern examples throughout history of people whose death did not silence their words or their work. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who was living in Nazi Germany at the time of the rise of the wickedness of the Nazi empire, and he was a lone voice that spoke out against it. Even so determined that he was part of the plot to help try and kill Hitler because he realized what a wicked man that he was, but he did not give up on what he believed in. He didn't go to another place. For a brief time, he went to England, and then the pastors in Germany wrote and said, what are you doing in England? You belong here. Here is where the fight is. And Bonhoeffer moved back to Germany and spoke out against Nazism, and he lost his life for it. He was martyred for what he stood for. And as a result, his words and his legacy still go on. Martin Luther King Jr., although he was an assassinated equality for African Americans in the civil rights movement, still moved forward. Why? Because they did not bow in the face of threats and persecution because they knew that their cause was too important. Church of Jesus Christ today, Living Hope Church, do you believe that your cause is that important today? Do you believe that God's way and the need to see people saved delivered and healed do you believe that cause is worth living for and even if necessary worth dying for do you believe that today christ assured his church that they would not be hurt by the second death what is the second death revelation 20:14 says is the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his demons it is a place of eternal torment it says but those who follow me will escape that but those who do not follow me will have that as their eternity. That is a frightening thing, my friend. To think about that is what hangs in the balance. You might say to yourself, well, why did God create something to torment people with? God never created anything to torment people with. If you go back to the very beginning story in the Garden of Eden, he created Eden for its blessing and for the people to, to grow and to prosper and to be in relationship with God. But man said, I don't want that. I want what I want. And here's the interesting thing about a loving God. God will let you have what you want whenever you want it because that's what free will allows. But just like when you charge things up on the credit card, the bill comes due eventually and you have to pay for what you did. Life is that way. 
You say, well, God shouldn't send good people to hell. There are good people in this world, but are you 100% good all the time, every time? I'm not. If you know how, show me, please. I would love for you to show me how to be good. Because we think to ourselves, well, I'm mostly good, so if I'm mostly good, I should go to heaven, right? And that would work if you could take the 60% of you that is good, maybe that part can go to heaven. But because you're not all good, you need redemption. Because you're not all good, you need salvation. You need Christ to take away your sin. He did the sacrifice on the cross so that we could be forgiven, taking the punishment we deserved. To say that you're mostly good is like on your wedding day having a white wedding dress and it's mostly clean except for the ketchup stain on your shoulder. How would that look? It's mostly clean. Can you imagine picking up your dress the day of your wedding and the dry cleaner says, well, it's mostly clean. You would be like, that's not enough. It needs to be perfect, right? That's the word, isn't it? Oh, get it, church. He wants you to be perfect. But you can't be perfect. But you know who was perfect? And who died for us? (laughs) So that you could be perfect. Not that you're perfect. In other words, you don't ever mess up. But that God has forgiven you and has made a way for you to cancel every debt of sin and every penalty that's associated with sin. He has made a way for us today. You don't have to fear the second death. Eternal separation from God. You don't have to fear that lake of fire today if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm not talking about you know God. The majority of people in this world say they know God, but they don't know who he is. I'm talking about you've confessed Christ as Savior. Those are the ones that will not see the second death. Jesus promises you won't be affected by the second death. How can we be sure of this promise? It's like, yeah, I know you said that, Jesus, but how do we know that to be true? Because Christ conquered death. Revelation 2a says, I am the first and the last. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Colossians 1.18 says, the head of the church is the firstborn among the dead. In other words, he was the first one to raise to eternal life. And if he can do it, if he did it, then we can trust in his promise that we will do it too. Revelation 1.18 says that he is the first and the last, the one who is dead and now alive and holds the key to death, hell, and the grave in his hands. John 3.16 says that whoever believes upon the Son shall not perish but have everlasting life as Kathy comes forward as we wrap up the service today. How do we know we can trust him? That when he promises us that you won't die but you'll have eternal life, that there's life after this life, how can we take that promise at face value? Well, it's like this. It's easier to trust someone when they've been there before. Do you remember the days where you used to have a map? Do you remember the days before your phone and your GPS and Waze told you which way to go? Do you remember those horrible days with the Rand McNally road map and you'd fold it out as like 10 feet across? And you're like, well, where is it? And your destination is really slow, really small on the map. And so you used to have to follow a map. Kids, believe it, back in the day before phones, we had a map. I used to follow the map. 
So either follow the map or you went with someone who had been there before, right? You ever take a road trip with someone? You say, I need to get here. And they go, oh, yeah, I've been there. So you bring them along. Okay, great. I got someone who's been there and knows the way. And you ever realize, like, in the middle of that drive or about three-quarters into the drive that they really don't know the way? They've been there. And you're supposed to be there at a certain time. And an hour later, you're driving around, and the person's like, I think it's that way, but I don't know. And they kind of just making faces, and they're not entirely sure. And you, when, after you're late and you're frustrated and exasperated, you look over them, and I said, I, you usually, like, are very tense in your voice to say, I thought you knew how to get there. I said, I did, but like it's different now and I don't remember, you know, it's like, and you don't know how to get there. Jesus can show us the way because he's been there. He's been dead and he's been alive too. He is the only person in the history of scripture who after being resurrected did not die again. Lazarus died. Jesus said, I did that once. I'm not doing that ever again. So you can follow me. Let me give you another example. We'll wrap this up. You ever hire somebody? You wanted to save a little money on a home repair that you're doing or an auto repair. And you're like, I need to save some money. So I know a guy. Everybody knows a guy. So like, okay, I need some plumbing done. I, I don't want to pay anybody a lot of money, so you, you go with someone's cousin, an apprentice plumber at the trade school, whatever. You have them come in, they tear your whole bathroom apart. About midway through the tearing apart of the bathroom, you realize they have no idea what they're doing, and now you've torn the bathroom apart for nothing. Or, or, they do the repair, everything looks like it should, but you turn on the faucet and the, the toilet flushes when you turn on the faucet. How many know you can look like it? But they've never done it before. They don't know what they're doing. The message is this, simply put. We can take confidence in what Jesus says about life after death because he knows the way, he's the first to do it, and he's done it. He knows how it works. He knows what happens. He knows what's on the other side. He made the promise, too. So it's his word. And Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's something you can take the promise. And God is not like man who lies to simply make people happy. What he says is true. So this morning, as we wrap this thought up today, I want to challenge with the idea that he's been there He's made it. He's overcome. And what he's calling us to do is like, I'm just asking you to do what I did. If I did it, you can do it too. And as a Christian, you do not need to fear death. You don't need to fear the difficulties that come your way. You don't need to fear what the world will throw against you. Just recognize that you are to fight no matter what the cost and stay true to the end and not to compromise who you are and what you believe under any circumstance. And they may take everything from you. They may even take your life. But you know what? That's the worst they can do to you because on the other side, Jesus is waiting for you at the finish line with that wreath that goes around your head. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You made it. Well done, you overcome. I knew you could do it. I knew you could do it. I was rooting for you. And the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 11, they were rooting for you too, saying you can do it. You can make it. You can overcome. I want to encourage you today that you, that you would know without a shadow of a doubt in your mind and heart that you're following Jesus today. I'm not talking about becoming a weird Christian or becoming a part of a church. What I'm asking you today is that Christ wants you to follow him and walk with him all of your days so that you would know what eternal life is, that you know what heaven is. I'm not talking about a philosophy. I'm not talking about man-made religion. I'm talking today about knowing the God who created you and everything in your life up until this point has been an empty hole that you've tried to fill with everything else and it feels like nothing fits. And the reason why nothing fits is because you've tried everything but Jesus. In the creation that God created you, you're designed a certain way and there's a piece in your life that's cut out for a particular mold and it's only for Jesus. So if you try filling it with everything else, it's empty. You try filling it with everything else, it falls short. But if you fill that thing with the Lord and have Jesus in your life, you will find the fulfillment you're looking for. You will find the answers that you want. You will find the life that you're looking for. So with no one else looking around with their heads bowed and eyes closed, is there someone today that says, you know what? I've heard what you said, Pastor Dan. I've heard what Jesus wrote to the church. But today, I don't have the assurance. I'm not sure that if I died today that I would receive that crown you were talking about. I'm not sure today that if I died today that I would be with Jesus instead of being in that place that's called the second death. If today you want to be assured by the promises of one who always keeps his promise, the the word of God, Jesus Christ, if you want to be sure today of that, this morning I give you the opportunity to give your life to Jesus. All you need to do is simply say, Pastor Dan, that's me today. I choose to follow Christ. That's where you're at. With no one else looking around, just simply slip up a hand and we'll pray for you this morning. I will pray for you. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that moment? Do you want to be? I believe you can today. then let's pray. My prayer for you is that you would be an overcomer. And this morning, if you're facing challenges that are greater than you, if you're feeling the pressure of the world around you, and you want to give up and give in, but there's still a little bit of you that wants to fight today, but you feel like that light's going out, if you say today, Pastor, pray for me, I feel the pressures of the world around me, and I just want to be strong. If that's where you're at, lift your hand, and I'll pray for you. Pray for me, Pastor. I need God's strength. Thank you. Then let's trust the Lord. God, we thank you today that you hear us when we call upon your name. Thank you for your promises of your word that are yes and amen to the believers in Christ. This morning, I pray today that those that are close to you but not quite Christians yet would choose, Lord, to follow you with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, I pray for those that are following you and walking with you but they feel like they want to give up abandon their faith to the pressures of this world. I pray that they would be courageous and strong. God, I pray that we would not compromise our convictions under any circumstances, but stand firm in the day of trial, knowing that you are, that we are not alone, but that you are with us. So 
would you strengthen those here? Would you encourage their hearts? Would you lead and guide their steps? Would you show them glimpses of your glory and your goodness, even in the midst of their darkness? Show them that you are faithful. And Lord, we carefully give you all the praise, honor, and glory when we come through on the other side of that difficulty. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.